Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. I'm Sam Nevis. And I'm David Trim. David, last week we talked about the 1901 restructuring of the Adventist Church. And without that restructuring, we probably would not have been able to have the explosion of mission, which was the early 20th century. 100%. Not all changes happened in 1901. There were some things that they needed to think deeper about and longer before they were ready to make a decision. Correct. The final steps were taken in 1903, though it's interesting, uh, at least for students of Adventist history and maybe even for enthusiasts, 1901 is, is well known. There's been much less attention to the 1903 session, but the extra structural reform implemented in 1903 really makes a difference. And what those structural reforms were was a further enlargement of the executive committee and, in effect, the end of the Foreign Mission Board, which was superseded by the General Conference Executive Committee. You mentioned last time that there were nine people in the executive committee. Yes. And now there was a, a more representation from the world field. What does that mean in terms of size? It was increased to 25, and union presidents were made ex officio members. And we talked about how... The first unions were created in the 1890s, but there were only two. And then a number of other unions were created in 1901, and it was agreed that that would be the model. And indeed, the membership of the General Conference changes from conferences to unions. Initially, union conferences, but then they later come up with the idea of the union mission for areas that are in the mission field. But that shows how they're taking the union model and they're applying it everywhere. So uh, the union presidents are extremely important in the new church ecclesiastical polity, and they become ex officio members of the executive committee. Uh, so you have, immediately, you have representation from the world. It's not just that you've enlarged the committee, but you're it broadening the scope of the committee as well. What does it mean in terms of the time frame of their meeting? Because when you have nine people, they're all in Battle Creek. Even if they travel, you can meet more often. Um, the executive committee is the is the the representative of the world church to make decisions that represent the world church in between sessions. Yes, sessions happen every two years at, at the time. At this point, yeah. Did the executive committee start to meet annually at this point? Biannually, do you know that? So what they do, what they do is they agree that the executive committee can meet with the members who are present in at the church headquarters which initially is Battle Creek, but by 1903, they've changed that as well. And we can talk about that in the next episode. They leave Battle Creek, which had been Adventist Central. <laughs> it yeah. had been the place for Adventists right. since the 1850s, since even before the church was formally organized. They moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, but so they agree that the executive committee, which they normally just call the General Conference Committee, executive committee they use occasionally but it's not until the 1970s that people regularly use that they just call I it the know that. they just call it the general conference committee um, it can meet with the people who are present in the headquarters but they agree that certain types of decisions need to be left to what they call a council and they start to have two councils a year one in the spring and one in the fall but they actually use the british term for it they call it autumn council uh, I'm not quite clear why they do that unless it's to acknowledge the fact that there are people who aren't American uh, who are members. 
Now, in practice, it's difficult for representatives from Australia and Africa to attend those meetings, but the representatives from Europe, uh, which quickly forms two other unions, as well as the original European Union, there's a separate union in Scandinavia and one in Britain. So very quickly, you have three unions in, in, uh, in Europe, uh, and, they, and there are some other representatives as well. And so they will all come across, certainly for the Autumn Council and very often for the Spring Council as well, because it's only five to seven days on a ship. It's a reasonable journey time. Huh. Whereas for Australia, you're talking about maybe four weeks to cross the Pacific. No, you could probably do it from London to New York in seven, eight hours. So exactly. it was seven, eight days, but it's better than three months. Absolutely. And, and, and so it's possible. And so they start to say, well, certain decisions will be taken by councils. And it's still the case today. Some of many of our listeners indeed won't know. The General Conference Executive Committee has two councils a year. Um, well, one they no longer call a council, but it's, it's a broader membership, which is the spring meeting and then annual council. Uh, which is held in the autumn. So the spring and autumn meetings still continues today. Uh, since the pandemic, executive committee meetings can have Zoom attendance, and so that can increase it. Um, previously, there would be, every so often, a general conference executive committee meeting would be held between spring meeting and annual council uh, to, for example, appoint a new somebody who's in one of the GC departments or to fill a gap in one of the division offices if somebody retired. Um, but normally the, that too would just be the people in the headquarters and people who telephoned in. Now we can do it via Zoom and we get very large attendance. Um, but even today we have that spring and autumn meeting. And of course, that's what they set up back in, in 1903. They say, right, we'll have the two councils a year and in between the executive committee can meet to take such decisions as need to be taken. But gradually there, are, as, as the church becomes more and more organized and certain things which had been unofficial and informal become formalized they say there are certain types of decisions which can only be taken by a council and later we would have certain decisions that can be taken by different committees all the way to the general conference in session right like the church manual and and right what and, have you at some point right and at that time there was more decided by the general conference session uh because they were held more frequently and so forth but um, the, the key decision that's taken, as I say, is to, the key decisions are to enlarge and broaden the scope of the executive committee, but also to end the separate existence of the Foreign Mission Board. And it's interesting, the year after the 1901 session, at a meeting of the General Conference officers, the president who was elected in 1901, Arthur Daniels, said that he believed the future work of the General Conference would be primarily that of a great missionary board. Therefore, he thought that all work could be handled by one committee instead of requiring a separate mission board. And as we touched on in our previous two episodes, the Foreign Mission Board had tried to operate almost independently of the GC officers and the GC committee. Um, and church leaders, including Ellen White, had lost confidence in it. And as we also touched on, there was a great deal of confusion about what its scope was. And I think that's why Ellen White and others had lost confidence in it. And so in 1903, at the 35th General Conference session, the Committee on Plans brought a report that included this proposal, that the General Conference Committee hereafter be the mission board of the denomination. 
But the key thing to remember is that this is part of a plan, that plan that we've talked about to expand the membership and extend the responsibilities of the executive committee. Um, and Daniels actually spoke to this report that came in and he said, the province of the General Conference Committee is of an advisory character to a large extent. The organization of the Union Conferences in 1901, he said, meant the administrative work had been taken from any central place and located in the Union Conferences, so that the role of the GC Committee was now what he's, and he, this is what he says, of a missionary character. So his solution is both to expand the membership of the committee, making it representative of the World Church, um, and to give it greater powers, making it truly an executive committee, but with powers relating to the concerns of the whole, and that meant in particular powers relating to missions and missionaries. So in other words, if I understood correctly, Daniel's, Daniel's speech was the administrative work of what happens in any particular region is the responsibility of the union that is there. Right, it's no longer a matter for the General Conference. And the General Conference will therefore focus on unentered territories and places that don't have an Adventist presence yet. And or where it's very weak and there isn't a union conference organized. Right, so the this sets up the entire structure of the General Conference, Absolutely. not for management, but for mission. That's beautifully put. That's exactly what happens, and it's a sea change in the General Conference. The idea had been that most matters could be taken at a general conference session. Again, because up until 1889, they were every year, even thereafter, they were every other year. And so you could take an awful lot of decisions at the general conference session. Now they're saying, no, general conference is going to be concerned with mission, with pushing back the boundaries of the church rather than dealing with what's already going on in the church. This is, this must give the impetus for, for different places to grow too, because now they have, I like the word autonomy, they, they, they understand what's happening locally within, you know, you could travel most unions from one side of the territory to the next um, within days, I presume. Yes. Uh, which means that you would have a more local uh, knowledge, understanding, insight. And Daniels actually says at one point, we've given the union self-government. He actually uses that political metaphor. They're now self-governing. Interesting. And, uh, and his experience in the mission field uh, really helped him to, to make those decisions. Yes, and to understand the need for it. The interesting thing is, Sam, it, this wasn't greeted with universal approval. There was opposition. Edward A. Sutherland, who's a moderately well-known name in Adventist history. He helped to found Madison College, the self-supporting college uh, in Tennessee. He was president of Emmanuel Missionary College, what today is Andrews University. He actually moved Battle Creek College out to southwest Michigan, where it became Emmanuel Missionary College. So Sutherland is, is moderately well-known, and Sutherland opposed this because he said the GC had focused and would focus too much on mission. I know, it's, it's building... But he's the head of a missionary college. How? <laughs> yeah, right. This is what he says. It seems to me that the Foreign Mission Board has practically swallowed up the General Conference Committee and the chairman of the Foreign Mission Board or the president has an opportunity to turn means, i.e. financial resources, into the channel in which he is especially interested so that other departments will suffer. And during the last two years, i.e. since 1901, this thing has been done. But mistakes have been made in swinging everything so heavily towards the foreign mission work that other departments of the work have suffered. So that's, there is that concern. But Sutherland 
is a minority. But I think he is accurate in his comments. You know, you have, you have limited resources. All of us have limited resources. And then you look at the needs of different departments. Let's take Sabbath School that serves a, f a very important function in, you know, uh, in teaching and inspiring and engaging the members. You also have other departments uh, that, are, that need resources. And now here you have the General Conference setting itself up to focus primarily on mission. And therefore, most of the resources will be toward foreign missions rather than strengthening those departments. That's true. But this, this shows that Sutherland misunderstood what had happened in 1901 because the departments all work at the conference and union conference level as well. And they have their own funding. At this stage, the, the process was that the conference has sent a tithe of their tithes to the unions and the unions sent a tithe of that tithe to the general conference. So, so the general conference diminishes by creating this middle layer, if you will, the general conference is necessarily diminishing its income yes. in a way, and therefore it needs to focus this income uh, that it receives right. on foreign missions. Right, and so the unions have the opportunity to put their, their money into the work of the separate departments, of which there aren't as many back then, there's only a, a handful. But so unions are perfectly capable of doing this. Also, departments in the general conference's mind had a role to play in mission. And why? Again, because the need for ministry at the local level is being done by the departments at the conference and the union conference. So the GC doesn't have to be putting funds into that. They have their own funds, their own way of generating revenue and income, and they are in touch with their constituency. So they have the opportunity to get more through, through gifts and bequests. So whereas for the general conference, the departments are there to help extend the mission. So the general conference departments are partly to provide coordination to the union conferences and, and, and conferences and to provide resources in the terms in terms not of money but of, of literature, for example, and training. But they're also there to provide a service to the mission field, which has no departments in place that can do it. So so, so the GC departments are calling people to serve as missionaries in that department, but in a foreign country. So Sutherland, I think, really, what his, what his speech does is show how he has misunderstood what has happened. And many people still today misunderstand what is happening because the role of GC departments is leadership, not management. Right. And, you know, in the last eight years that I've been here, uh, there are some, uh, thankfully not in the general conference, at least I haven't seen it in this way, but many people expect the General Conference to manage that particular department all around the world. Right. When uh, uh, the role of GC departments isn't management, it's leadership. It's, look, this is the direction that family ministries say that we need to focus on. The world has changed in these particular ways. Here are some resources that will help you as you manage the work in your field and in your locality. Yes. Um, no one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I really want today? I want to be managed. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. Yeah. But all of us recognize the importance of being led because great yes. leadership can unlock all of the potential that's within you. But if you, ha you don't, if you don't have autonomy to do what you need to do, then there is no motivation without autonomy. You need to be able to do it. Yeah, and I think the distinction you draw between management and leadership is a very apposite one. And again, there isn't a need now and there wasn't a need then for the general conference department to manage that department all around the world because 
departmental directors at a conference level have been elected by the conference session. They have a mandate from their constituency to do that job. Union conference departmental directors have been elected at the union constituency meeting or session. Again, they have their own constituency. They have a mandate to do their job in that area. Uh, so the mandate for the general conference is to help the general conference push back the boundaries of mission in areas where the church is weak and just doesn't have this kind of uh, infrastructure and to provide, as you put it, leadership in the terms of setting a general direction and these days increasingly of, of providing resources. So, but, but so it's, it's it, uh, this, as you say, Sutherland misunderstood it. People still misunderstand it today. Let's jump to today, David, and, and draw some parallels like we, we often do in these episodes. Um, with the increase of digital technologies, there is a natural pressure to centralize much of the operation and the resources at a general conference level. Mm. A lot of people misunderstand that too, especially older historians who fail to see the impact of digital technologies right. in the church. Because digital technology isn't by its very nature, can't be in one place or one region. That's right. It's immediately global. And the efficiencies of our mission require uh, global software, for example, that will help. So global software in finance, in membership software, in, in, in even mission software. Yep. So there is a, a natural tendency for people to, to expect the general conference to take on more of that responsibility. So if you, want, if you want something to be done well at a global scale, let's take resources, let's say at the general conference and create it. What's the problem with that? The tension here is if you organize something so well at a global level, you are taking away the, you, you can, it's possible that you take away uh, the need for great leadership to be developed at a lower level. Right. So take a union, for example. You decide there, let's say a field has six conferences, a large union, six conferences. And what they do at the union for this particular department is so good that everyone follows it. Isn't that wonderful? Well, at first, yes. But if that removes the autonomy from your six mm -hmm. conferences, you need to, how, how are you going to replace leadership? You never allowed enough autonomy in those conferences to develop great leadership in that department. And therefore, there is no one to choose mm -hmm. that can do that uh, better. So the tension of the 21st century is this, how can we have the best resources at the appropriate level in a way that continues to develop leadership in lower levels. That, and that tension isn't resolved, and we're going to need to resolve it. Yes, and how to resolve it is, is still unclear. That's part of the reason we haven't resolved it. But going back to 1903, um, in the end, a simple and on-the-point amendment was voted to the GC Constitution that said the General Conference Committee shall have the supervision of the missionary operations of the denomination. So the Foreign Mission Board formally ceased operating in 1903, but the, some people say there was no longer a mission board. But that's wrong. The General Conference Executive Committee becomes the mission board. There's no longer a separate foreign mission board as a separate legal corporation with its own constitution and relationship to the General Conference. But there is a mission board. It's the General Conference Executive Committee. So today we would say that the terms of reference that pertain to mission are now incorporated into yes. this committee. So the function is still there, not, but not as a separate And body. actually the name is still there. Um, it, was, it was necessary for 
legal reasons not to completely wind up the mission board. Um, and indeed, Willie White says to the 1903, the term needs to be utilized for necessary legal business. Well, what did he mean? It included management of property because many properties overseas bought by missionaries had been registered in the name of the mission board. I see. Not of the general conference. So to transfer ownership of them all to a different legal entity would have been time consuming. It would have been expensive and probably in some cases impossible. So rather than just uh, remove it completely, we just use the same name for legal purposes. Right. But it's another. We do this today still, don't we? In the executive committee, we of Take Hope Channel Board or, or others. Well, that's that's Where's true. That? But, but, but when uh, what you're referring to, and not all of our listeners or viewers will know, is that during sometimes annual council, the session, the, the, the annual council business session will um, adjourn and we reconvene as the constituency of the Hope Channel or Adventist World Radio. But it is a separate legal. It just happens that its membership is the same, but it is a separate body. Whereas the General Conference Executive Committee didn't reconvene as the mission board. It was the mission board. Okay, I got it. Okay, it was different. It mm -hmm. was the mission board. Um, and this meant actually that what veteran leaders had long been urging had finally come to pass. Actually, in 1901, Uriah Smith, the grand old man of the, the church, um, the first general conference secretary, uh, leading theologian, he told the 1901 session that the general conference committee should, quote, distribute its administrative responsibilities among the union conferences and get into a position where it could give all its time and influence and power to missionary problems. <laughs> and if that happened, Smith said, it would enable the church to send forth in this generation this gospel of the kingdom for a witness to all nations. He was clearly focused on proclamation and mission. Absolutely. But again, he, if anyone was vested in the old system... It was him. It was him. But no, he's like, this. we need to make this change. Hmm. Um, and that was in 1901. And people, as we touched on last episode, they're aware that probably something needs to be done with the foreign mission board, but they're not willing to do it. They want to think about it. In 1903, Daniel shared his vision of what ought to happen now that the GC had, as he put it, shared its administrative responsibilities among the union conferences. So what should happen, he said, is that it ought to dedicate its time and influence and power to missionary problems. And then he said, the administration in the United States has all been taken away and is now placed in the hands of men appointed to that work in the east and the north and in the south and in the central and western states. But while that has been going on, our missionary problems have been greatly increasing. More workers than ever before are being sent out, which has increased the work of the mission board. And as I have studied it, I have become convinced that one of the great purposes of the General Conference Committee would be to deal with these worldwide problems everywhere. So he said, the president of every union conference and the chairman of every union mission field in the world ought to be a member of the committee, which, as we've touched on, they did. They made them ex officio members. And so he said that way the church would have, quote, the whole world directly represented on the General Conference Committee. To that, he urged, should be added, quote, the leading men in the departments and a few men of special experience and special ability until you have a thoroughly representative committee representing all the interests of this great work. Such a truly representative body, Daniel said, would be a world's conference committee. And then he said, now that, to my mind, brethren, is what should be the mission board of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a world's mm -hmm. conference committee. And that's how things ev eventuated. 
um, but in arguing for a larger committee to take on a larger share of the world's work, Willie White was keen that the that people not lose sight that mission would be the chief part of the new GC committee's work. Uh, he used similar language to Daniels. He stressed that the general conference is a world's conference. And then Willie White says something very interesting. Given Daniels' proposal for the new executive committee, and in light of the implementation of over the previous two years of the union conference model of structure, White asks a rhetorical question. What is there left for a general conference to do? But then having posed the question, he gives the answer. He said, why the general conference has to look after the mission field? The general conference by this system of organization is forced to become a mission board and our general conference must let union conferences attend to the work of their union conference and the only thing that is left for the general conference committee to do is the mission work. And I pray God that its full strength may be given to that part of the work. So that's a very that's a very you know pronounced view, and it helps to overcome the views of people like Sutherland. Uh, but I also think we can lose the full significance of White's views if we view them through the mists of time, because today we look back and say, sure, of course, but remember, this is not a period of tranquility in the Adventist Church. Instead, it was in this era that Dr. John Harvey Kellogg actively resists control of the church by control by the church of its medical institutions. And at the same time, he was advancing theological views that were, to put it mildly, unorthodox. <laughs> and what people forget is that Kellogg was not a party of one. He was the leader of a faction. And we have records, actually, of meetings between Daniels and General Conference leaders and all of Kellogg's faction. And it includes really important, you know, it includes people who are important in the world, judges, for example. And it includes people who are significant in the church. So Kellogg's was maneuvering politically, gathering support for whatever views he had. Absolutely. Kellogg isn't just one man, even if a titanic one. No, he's more than, because he's got the support of a lot of people in the church. And let me guess, he wants more centralization. Well, he wants more control for him over the church's medical work. He doesn't want more, he wants less centralization, but he wants more centralization in his hands. Yeah. And he doesn't, so he's opposed to the centralization of, in the general conference hand, of control of the medical institution through the medical department. He's like, it's okay, look, do the, the mission work on that, on that end, give me all the health, I, I can handle that. Right. Um, so there's conflict swirling around Kellogg and to a great extent driven by him, and it was deeply polarizing. Church leaders, physicians, educators, they were all pushed to take sides. So that in times such as these, the church's leaders were willing to see considerable ecclesiastical authority put in the hands of a lower level of structure is remarkable. Yes, it is. W and when did Kellogg's leave, do you remember? Uh, Kellogg's disfellowship, 1907, I think. So but, this had a lot to do with it. Yeah, and the, the, the thing is, the decision paid off because the new union conferences and their leaders helped to resist Kellogg's party's efforts to seize control of the direction of the Adventist church. Because really, that's what Kellogg wants. He says it's about the medical work. But remember, he's advancing these strange theological views at the same time. Kellogg thinks he should have charge of the direction of the Adventist church. 
and that the church manages to resist Kellogg and all those people who support him is partly because the union conferences become part of that. And so it's no longer just Daniels. It's no longer just a small committee of nine as it had been. Instead, you've got a wide range and a broadly based body saying, no, this isn't the way we're going to do business as the church. We're going to work through the structures we have, which now have devolved authority, and we're not going to concentrate authority over all the medical institutions in the hand of one man. All of this within a period of, of a decade, pretty much, this whole movement. And I, I had not seen it this way, but this reorganization meant that it is very difficult to take hold of power in the Adventist church. No matter how influential someone is, uh, the unions being the representatives or the constituents of the general conference. Yes. Um, and naturally the conferences being the constituents of a union, it is very difficult to determine, even when we weren't millions of people, to say this is this person has high influence, this is where we're going. Right. Instead, what happens is you have to build consensus. And I think this is misunderstood by people who criticize the church, and sometimes not without reason, for being slow to act and rather cumbersome. Um, and it is. But that's because we move not dictatorially or in an authoritarian way. We build by building consensus and having to build consensus in different parts of the world and at different levels of the church. And for people who say, well, I wish the church could be quicker to react, the answer I would give is, okay, but would you also rather that the church was more authoritarian? Would you rather that the church concentrated more power in just a few hands, which would be going back to the situation that we rejected in 1901 and 1903? Uh, because there has to be that trade-off. Yes. If, if, you, if you have, especially today with communication being instant, it wouldn't have worked in 1900, but today if you had an executive committee of nine that was charged with everything, the church would be able to respond, well, ex except it wouldn't because the workload would be completely overwhelming for those nine individuals. But uh, the church could respond very quickly to certain situations. But, but what would you have lost? It would have, you would actually have had the return of what Ellen White called kingly power. And I think even in that situation, the structure that our pioneers created here would still resist that because I've always been challenged with, and you know how the chair changes the discourse? Before coming to the General Conference, when I looked at the communication, I thought, you guys are so incompetent. <laughs> you cannot communicate with the world. And, and if you did a good job, you would be able to. GC communication has never been more prolific. And yet, we are fragmented by in, in terms of communication by design. It's not a flaw. It's Exactly. It's not a flaw. It's by design. It's by design. Because we, okay, I'm in the General Conference. Do you know how hard it is and how many years it takes to communicate something with all the 22 million members we have? Well, it's, it actually takes forever because there's some of them who it will never get to. Right. We have no way of communicating directly to our members. And that seems like a very bad thing. But no, it, it means that there is resilience in the system mm. to go in any given direction. And of course, the price we pay for that is the slowness of being able to communicate. But... The work is still being done locally. Exactly. And that's the thing. Just because it isn't being done at the center doesn't mean the work isn't being done. And it's being done by people who are in touch with local dynamics and local needs. 
Could they at times do it better? Yes, of course, and that's but that's true for all of us. Um, so it's it's an interesting trade-off that's that's built into the system. But the key thing is, and it, it doesn't work so much today, we wouldn't say today that the General Conference Committee is only about the mission work, though perhaps we could we would be well advised to look at those statements from 1903 and say perhaps there's more point. here that we could look at. Um, but that's partly because the mission work has expanded so much. Uh, and so inevitably, the General Conference role shifted in the 1970s to supporting governance and good organization. Is there... If we're to draw an analogy with today and say, is there still a need for the General Conference Committee to be directly involved with expanding mission? I think the answer is yes. And I think in that sense, we would do well to look back to 1903. Um, because even though the church now has expanded in ways that would have seemed unimaginable in Central America, the Caribbean, South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, look at parts of West Africa, look at all of North Africa, the Middle East, West Asia, um, and despite the growth of the church in India and China, look at South Asia and East Asia and look at Southeast Asia apart from the Philippines. Plenty um, of room for, for expansion. Look, look at Europe and its big cities today. There is still the need for the church to be pushing from the top and from the center with all the prestige and weight of resources that that gives to be saying, this is what we need to be doing. And let the work be done at the local level by those who have been tasked by their constituencies to do it. Um, let but even, them, even let that... them get on with it and do it, and let's us focus on channeling resources to the places where there are very few resources and there isn't an infrastructure to do this work. In practical terms, there will always be tension between the global and the local. You know, I, you're from the, the British Union, Trans-European Division, so am I, although I was born in Brazil. My home division is the Trans-European Division. Yes. And the last thing a local pastor wants to hear in the Trans-European Division is the General Conference has a way for me to do my job. Yes. <laughs> right? So, it's it. yes, the church is, is experiencing a slow decline or at least a slow growth, let's say, um, in many parts of Europe and, and, and others. In many places, it is a decline. In many places, it is a decline. Right. So the in, in places in Europe, we're talking about it yeah. is worth having the difficult conversation. And I think one of the ways we can at the General Conference fulfill our role, especially in the digital age, is to demonstrate and to test different methodologies in different locations that are willing to partner with us and say, OK, where does this work? How about that? Does that work better there? Mm. And showing the results to the local fields and saying, we have seen success doing this. Feel free to implement it as you, as you see fit. Yes. I think that would be the role of the General Conference is, is to test this and to, and to showcase whatever is working in different parts of the world so that we could benefit from it. Because if and, you... Yeah, and to become a clearinghouse. Sure. And, and that's part of the leadership, as you say, to say, look, this has worked in this part of the world, consider whether it could work in yours or consider whether even an adapted form of it might work in your part of the world. Here's what's going on in the different places. Here are a series of things that have worked. Now you try it for yourself and, and let us know if it works for you. And it depends how you measure success to a great degree because some people measure success of a general conference leader when they see the whole world using the same terms that that particular leader uses. I'll take, for example, the greatest drive in the last few years from Elder Ted Wilson himself, the president, 
total member involvement. This is this is his main focus, you know, members and pastors together yes. doing something. Yeah. Truth is, there are many parts of the world where no one heard the term total member involvement, and yet the local focus is on the participation of members in the mission. It doesn't matter what you call it. The success of, a, of, of an initiative, the success of, a, of an emphasis is in the practical elements of it, regardless yes. of what it's called. And if we, want, if we lack the humility to allow local fields to call it, frankly, whatever they like, we will miss the point. And we will, there will always be this tension of your success is people adopting this particular name. It isn't. Uh, the success is demonstrating to the rest of the world what is working in other parts of the world and, and right. moving us in a particular direction. And that's become an even more important role for the General Conference than it was in 1903. And even though I'm an historian, I would never say the answer is to go back because the world moves forward, society moves forward, technology, goodness knows, moves forward. Um, but there are times we can, we can look at principles and say, yes, this could be applied. Otherwise, you're going to be making the same mistakes over and over again. Right. And I think that, and so some things have changed, and there, there's unquestionably still a major role for the General Conference. But what was done in 1903 to expand the representation? So in effect, it, it, it didn't devolve more powers downward to the unions, but it brought the unions into the discussion more. So it broadened the level of, of input into decision-making processes, and it said, you know what, we're going to trust the localities to get on and do the work in the way that they know best, and we are going to provide certain resources, such as the Sabbath School Quarterly, which is, of course, a great tool for, for unity. We'll provide certain resources, but we will focus our administrative work on pushing back the boundaries of mission. And if those decisions hadn't been taken, we wouldn't have seen the golden age of Adventist mission that followed in the subsequent decades. I'll draw one more um, insight for this episode, and then we'll move on to the next episode uh, when people come back next week, where we will discuss uh, some of the, of the changes that were happening in terms of the headquarters moving from uh, Bato Creek to Tacoma Park, and we yes. can dive deeper into that. But I want to point out and I want your opinion on this, David, that you've got, you've got great shifts in culture that are happening at the turn of the century in different parts of the world, right? So there, there are many different things happening in many different countries, and the church needs to respond locally to those changes. Uh, globalization would not become talked about for quite some time thereafter yes. until the tools of communication allow for that. So there is a need for this, for this constant um, localization, contextualization of mission wherever people are. And the structure in those places are not that sophisticated. The greatest sophistication is still in the U.S. where the church is more developed. Today, the General Conference, there are many divisions that are much more sophisticated in the way they organize themselves and the way that they they project uh, uh, how they handle problems. And I'll give you an example of this. At the General Conference a few weeks ago, we voted a work group that would analyze the benefits, risks, and legal and ethical implications of artificial intelligence. Mm. Right? It's a new technology. It's come to change the world. Anyone who uses generative AI for more than 10 minutes 
is blown away by the possibilities. So I just came back from the South American division and heard that they have a similar committee. They had not heard about ours. We had not heard about theirs. Right. And they're working on the benefits, the risks, the legal and the ethical implications of artificial intelligence. So what we have today is divisions and sometimes unions, they have pioneered different parts of, uh, they've pioneered different technologies and different uh, methodologies that the rest of the world could benefit from. And the General Conference serves in the role of understanding what they're trying to do and seeing where other places will benefit from that. So I see a much more collaborative spirit today where not only is the General Conference leading, but we're also following, we're also observing. Yes. We're also learning what is working in different parts of the world. How do you see that, uh, that dynamics in the last 120 years since I we think, started this? I think that's very much in keeping with what was done in 1901 and 1903 where it says we're going to entrust certain things to a lower level of the church and allow them to get on with it and do it. And that means they may actually um, pioneer new technologies or new processes, new mechanisms, new ways of doing things that we can learn from. But it's, it's the ability to be humble about that, to say we're not going to say that all the answers are going to come from the center. Instead, some of the answers are going to come from the whole networked body. Uh, and we made that possible by the reforms that took place in 1901 and that were concluded in 1903, whereby we say we are going to entrust certain things to the, the union level um, and to the conference level, but especially the union level because that works directly with the general conference. But of course, the union is, is doing what the conference is doing. Today, we have divisions which are in theory a subdivision of the, of the general conference, just a regional office, but actually work almost like super unions in certain respects. And they're doing the same thing. They are now um, innovating and doing, not all of them in every respect, but in key places, divisions are innovating. And when that happens, this is where the general conference's role as clearinghouse becomes important to say, you know what, this is good. Let's work with this. And it's that humility to say, we aren't going to have all the answers as a small group in a headquarters here outside Washington, D.C. Instead, we're going to allow the whole of the world church to contribute to the fortunes and the growth of the world church. David, why don't we draw the line here and come back in the next episode with the movement from Battle Creek to Tacoma Park in Maryland. Let's do that. Thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on Adventist Review TV on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or listening on your favorite podcast platform. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. And if you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And finally, if you want to find mission opportunities today, go to VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. Bye-bye.